what Roger asked me to do is um, an overview of all four Gospels. So that's what I want to uh, I want to honor what he what he asked me to do. We're going to look at basically the voices, the the uniqueness of the voices of the four Gospels. Uh, I think one thing that's often overlooked we we, uh, we lump the synoptics together, right? And there's John, 92% unique. Well, what we don't realize often is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have their own voices and have their own vocabularies. And they're interested in, Mark is interested in things that Matthew couldn't care less about. And I find that really interesting. So that, that's what I want to I look at. So let, sure. Yes, please. Well, just as close as it can be close. That's good. I've just... <laughs> I have dyslexia really pretty badly and dis- distractions. I can't, oh, yeah. if I'm distracted, I forget where I am and I have to start all over again. You don't no want, questions. yeah, you, yeah, yeah, no questions. <laughs> Only ask questions that you're sure I know the answer to, then it will be good. <laughs> like, you know, no trick questions like where do babies come from or something like that. I'll, I'll forget where I am. Yep, we're going to look at that. Okay. We're going to look at the author's voice, the life situation, because they're all written. One of the reasons they're different is they're written to different life situations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Okay? So let me pray before we get started. Lord, thank you for taking us away from the busyness of the world and uh, the provision of this place where we can come together in the quiet, we can come together and encourage each other, and uh, most especially that we we have your word. We can hold it and read it and 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 uh, pour our lives into it and so uh, uh, there's nothing but thanksgiving in our hearts as we open uh, this wonderful book so be with us uh, Lord Jesus help us to understand you better in your name amen okay um, let me start off with just the, the, the kind of the basic methodology I was discipled by a guy named William Lane uh, Bill was a commentary writer, wonderful pastoral heart, uh, re- a racial reconciliation person, uh, spoke 16 languages, uh, PhD from Harvard, uh, it taught the Bible for ministry, uh, for memory. So I was 26 years with this man, and you can imagine what that does to your confidence level, being with someone who's that smart all those years. You realize you're just, you know nothing, which is probably a good place for me to be. Uh, but Bill used to uh, always start by uh, asking the question, uh, how do we listen to the Bible? Uh, I wore my Shema shirt. Um, if you go to Israel, uh, the, one of the tricks that the rabbis will pull on Gentiles is they'll say, what's the first commandment? And of course, you're a good Gentile, you'll say, you know, have no other gods before me. And the rabbis will say, wrong. The first commandment is listen. Shema. Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Veha'avta et Adonai Eloheka, Bekol Lefavka, Bekol Nefeshka, Bekol Me'odeka. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, listen. That's the first commandment. And Bill would say, so how do we do that? You know, how do we bring ourselves to this process of listening uh, to the Bible? And Bill would say, we use our imagination. We engage our imagination. Because the Shema says we listen with all of our heart and with all of our mind. So what integrates us so that we can bring all of ourselves to the listening of Scripture? And Bill would say it's the imagination. 
So that's that's what I've operated. That's where all the songs I've written have, have come out of that that uh, that uh, point of view. So when we're listening to scripture with our imaginations, we listen to the voice of the author. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is the differences in the voices of the gospel writers, different vocabularies. There, there, there's a couple of dozen things that you can learn, and you'll hear a vo you'll hear a verse, and you'll go, "Well, that sounds like Mark." If uh, if if Jesus has just said something really significant, and the person he's talking to has no idea what he's talking about, that's John every time. John's really interested in that. Um, if Jesus is real emotional, that's Mark probably because he's his emotions are more uh, on the surface in Mark. So. Um, yeah, you listen to the voice of the author, you listen to the life situation, and, and some of the life situations of the Gospels we have a fairly good idea about. Some, Matthew, for example, we can just guess at the life situation of Matthew. And we reconstruct the life situation by reading uh, between the lines and, and uh, what, what little historical, and we have virtually, not virtually none, but we have very little historical outside of the uh, uh, Gospels. We have people like Eusebius and and uh, Papias and people like that that, that will, will tell us what's going on in Mark's community or John's community or whatever. But we have very little information, but, but we, can, we can listen to the voice, we can listen to the life situation, and then what, what I'm interested in as well is we listen to what they don't say. That's, that's a very interesting, because uh, when you're listening to, a, to another person, I've been married 40 years, listen to my wife, and uh, because the best way to love someone is to listen to them, by the way. If you're married or going to be married, that's a really important lesson to learn. The best way to love someone is to do something for them. The best way to love some, someone is to listen to them. The best way to love God is to listen to them, right? And uh, that's the Shema again. Um, and when I'm listening to my wife, the first thing I do that's wrong is I, I finish her sentences for Because I know what she's going to say. Right, she'll start to say something, and I stop listening because I know what she's going to say. After 40 years, I'm usually right. I do that to the Bible too, especially the Gospels. I have this over familiarity with the Gospels. I finish the Gospel sentences for it sometimes, and that's not a good thing. So, uh, yeah, you, you listen to what they don't say, and and we're going to do that too. Okay. So let's start. Let's start uh, applying this to the Gospels. And we'll start with Mark, because almost certainly Mark is the first gospel that was written. Uh, I'm getting uh, my clock up here so I don't go over time. Um, who is Mark? Well, we, we know a lot about Mark. He's one of the few gospel writers that we really know a lot about. Uh, he's an extraordinarily privileged young man, uh, very young. Um, he's the nephew or the cousin, we're not exactly sure how to translate that word, of Barnabas. That's Colossians 4.10. I mean, come on. Barnabas is a follower of Jesus and active in the community before Paul even comes to faith. I mean, Barnabas is, you know, incredible. And that's his uncle or his cousin. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, early on, he became a, a disciple of Jesus. Acts 12 and Acts 13 talk about that. Uh, the church kind of started, let me say something way over the top. The church in Jerusalem, I think, started in his house. And by that I mean that they are meeting in his house. This is Acts 12, 12. It's the first time we ever hear his name. Uh, they're meeting in his house praying when, when they bust Peter out of prison. So um, 
I won't be dogmatic about this, but I think there's a good chance that the, the Jerusalem church began, or at least one part of it began in Mark's house. So, um, so he's a member of that primitive community uh, and grows up in this church, in this house where they're, they're meeting. And there's also a chance that Jesus might have had uh, celebrated the Last Supper there. And my academic reason for that is I really want that to be true because I think that's a really cool idea. So I'll just be honest with you. But there's a chance. There's a chance. Never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. So I won't dogmatically say that. But I really want that to be true. Some people connect him uh, with a young man who flees in the garden in Mark 14. They feel like that's a little cameo. Uh, when I'm uh, talking to high school students about the Bible, I tell them, you know, you can read all the Gospels, but don't read Mark because there's nudity in it. Right? And I hear all of a sudden, I hear pages flipping. You know, the young man who, who uh, the, the, the soldiers grab his sheet and he spins away and runs away naked in, the, in Mark, that's Mark 14, 51 and 52. Uh, there's an old tradition that says that, that, uh, that might have been Mark, a um, little cameo. Um, he travels with Barnabas and Paul. So there's, there's a connection to Paul. I mean, come on. Uh, on the famine ministry in Acts 11, he was there on the first missionary journey. Uh, he leaves. They're going to start. They start to go inland. They start to go to Perga. Is that rain? Yikes! No, that can't be rain. It wasn't even cloudy. Well, maybe, maybe it is. Okay. Wow. So anyway, when when uh, when Paul and Barnabas go inland to Perga, Mark bugs out. He goes home, and Paul was not pleased about that. We know there was this kind of schism. Uh, between uh, Barnabas and, and Paul about Mark, and Barnabas, being his uncle, you know, uh, stood with stood with uh, the young Mark, and they started touring together. And Paul and Silas. Then after the split, it was Paul and Silas. Uh, however, they reconcile at the end, and Paul speaks very highly of uh, of Mark, Colossians 4:10 and 2 Timothy 4:11. Okay. But the big connection of Mark is with Peter. In uh, 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Mark as my son. He's in the greetings at the end of the letter, and, and so does my son Mark. Um, so uh, a lot of people believe, and my, my mentor, Bill, Bill Lane, was fairly dogmatic about this. Peter is really the person who's behind the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of Peter, and let's talk about that. In 2 Peter 1.15, Peter says, he knows he's dying, right? 2 Peter is kind of a last will and testament. Peter says, I'm, I'm going to make sure that after I've departed, you're going to be able to remember all these things. And Bill said that was kind of a veiled uh, reference to the fact that he's meeting, uh, meeting with Mark, and, uh, and they're, they're working on this Gospel. Um, Eusebius, which is uh, our first church historian, he's the first collector of church histories. Uh, Eusebius tells us, and I think it's reliable because I really like this, it's a good idea. He quotes Papias in saying that the, the members of the early church came to Mark and asked him to write down the remembrances of Peter because uh, they understood that Peter wasn't going to live much longer, he was going to die soon. So again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but you read the Gospel of Mark looking for this, 
And it is affirmed again and again and again that Peter, Peter is there. The disciples were referred to as Peter and his companions. That sounds like Peter. Um, Peter, uh, if indeed he's behind Mark, he leaves himself out. All the really cool things he did, he leaves himself out. The humility of Peter's there. So if you read the other Gospels when Peter walks on the water, right? Well, Jesus walks on the water and Peter walks on the water too. You read that account in Mark, Peter walking in the water isn't, on, isn't in there. Uh, Jesus walking in the water is, but Peter uh, isn't. So, uh, and we'll look at that list in just a second. Okay, so one idea is that it's, um, uh, it's influenced uh, heavily by uh, Peter, but the other is the life situation, and boy, that's so weird. That's messing me up, that sound, sorry. Um, the other thing that's important about the Gospel of Mark is the, the, the belief that it was written, uh, the life situation was people uh, were suffering persecution from the fire in Rome. And let me read you um, the, the indication of that. This is 1 Peter 4, uh, 11. And let me just read this to you and listen to this and see, see if you don't think this, this sounds like the end of a letter. This is uh, 1 Peter 4, 11. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things uh, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Does it sound like the end of a letter to you? That sounds like the end of a letter to me. And then it starts up again. Verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Now, there are people that believe that what's happened is Peter has heard about the fire in Rome. He, he, he ended his letter and then got word that the fire had happened. And so he, don't be surprised, you're going to suffer these things. Because if you look at the first part of the letter, there's, uh, when, when he refers to suffering, it's always as a distant possibility. But after uh, 4.12, it's an immediate possibility. They're, they are going to suffer. Uh, because if you know the story, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. And the first time we, as Christians, suffered persecution was in Rome under Nero because of the fire. Uh, and we were crucified. He crucified us. He, he would line his garden with uh, crosses with Christians on them. And then at night, he would set them on fire to, uh, to, to serve as torches for his garden parties. That was, that's the world of the first readers of the Gospel of Mark. They are living under persecution. And, uh, and one of the goals of Mark is he wants you to know you're not going to suffer anything that Jesus hasn't suffered. That's another key to understanding Mark uh, as, uh, as apart from the other Gospels. So, uh, for example, uh, you read the, uh, the wilderness temptation of Jesus in Mark. Mark is not interested in that story. He tells it in two verses. You read it in the, in the other Gospels and the, the threefold temptation, turn the stones into bread. That's not in Mark. He doesn't have any of those details. Mark gives you one detail. He says that when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was with the wild beasts. Now, why do you think only Mark, who's writing to Christians who are suffering persecution, has that detail? Because they're being thrown to wild beasts in the arena. And he wants them to know, you're not going to suffer anything that Jesus hasn't already suffered. Only in Mark does Jesus' family, uh, one of my favorite passages, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers accuse Jesus of being out of his mind. That's only in Mark. 
And I think that's because Mark's first readers are hearing from their families that they must be, you must be crazy. You're going to follow a Galilean carpenter? You're going to die for this guy? You're out of your mind. And we can go right through Mark and show how suffering is always... Uh, and I'll, I'll read you a, a list of those. So there's a little bit of life situation. It's, uh, it's reflected in Peter's writing. The, the fire in Rome, by the way, was July of 64 AD. And uh, let me give you some of those uh, examples really quickly. I've got to remember I've got to do all four Gospels, so I've got to move, move it into high speeds. I already said 113. 113 is uh, the reference to the wild beasts. Jesus is betrayed from someone uh, in the inner circle uh, in Mark 3.19, even as the, uh, his, uh, his readers are. His family thought he was out of his mind. That's 3.12, and that's only in Mark. Um, 4.17, some will fall away as persecution uh, because of the word happens, only in Mark. The call of the disciple is the call to martyrdom, to take up his cross. That's Mark 8.34. Only in Mark, Jesus says, uh, everyone will be salted with fire. That's 949. That's only in Mark. See, you're listening to the voice and you listen to what they say or what they don't say. The other Gospels don't say that, but Mark says that. Um, Jesus promised them that persecution, uh, 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 those that would follow him would experience persecution. Uh, 10, that's 1030. Uh, on it goes. Jesus stands in front of a Roman magistrate in 15. Of course, that happens in all the Gospels. Um, yeah. So here's a few things to listen for when you're listening to Mark. Listen for the immediacy of his language. Um, his favorite word is uthos, which means immediately. He uses it 11 times in the first chapter. And um, a, a translation like NIV, they translate it five or six different ways because if you translate it literally every time, it starts to sound really redundant. But immediately is his favorite word. And immediately Jesus did this, and immediately he did this. And the, the narrative moves along really quickly. Um, uh, there's an absence, and this is my idea, I think this is a pretty good idea. There's an absence, because it's so primitive and, and it's the first gospel, there's an absence of a, of a secondary agenda in Mark. Uh, the other gospels clearly, I mean, of course, obviously their agenda is to tell you who Jesus is so you can have faith in him. That's their main agenda. But John's secondary agenda is he can just show you that nobody really understood Jesus. That's kind of a secondary agenda that John has. Luke wants to show you that the world's been turned upside down by Jesus and the people who should have understood him never did. That's, we'll look at that in a second. That's the structure of Luke. Mark doesn't do that. He's just telling you the story of, of, of Jesus and, and it lacks that strong second, secondary agenda. I just put that idea out there to you. If you, you, know, if you disagree, don't tell me because I'm very fragile. Um, <laughs> He's very interested in the emotional life of Jesus. I'm going to give you adjectives here in just a second. If you're a real geek, you go through the Gospels and you count adjectives. Okay? Uh, John uses four adjectives to describe Jesus' emotions. Only four. Jesus is fairly unemotional in John. Little short Mark, he uses 15. 15 adjectives. He's all, Jesus is angrier and sadder. And, uh, and Here's the list. Um, 125, Jesus strongly rebukes. In 141, he's moved with compassion, and it's a very, as I understand, I'm not great at Greek, but as I understand, it's a very um, powerful word, this 
being moved in, in his guts, kind of ex like Nitzomai. He strongly warns them in 143. In 3.5, he looks around in anger. Very emotional, see? And that's Peter. See, Peter was on the receiving end of his emotions, I think, than anybody. He sternly warns in 3.12. He gives strict orders in 5.43. In 6.6, he marvels at something. How cool is that? Um, 6.34, he has compassion. Uh, in 7.34, he sighs deeply, and only Mark uses this particular term to describe Jesus. He just sighs deeply, and uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, he strongly orders, uh, he rebukes Peter, he's indignant, uh, and only Mark uses that word to describe Jesus. And then in 14.34, he's deeply grieved. So Jesus is more emotional than Mark, and, and again, I'm making this case. I think that's a reflection of the fact that Peter's behind, behind, uh, behind uh, the story, okay? So let's see if I've left anything out. Do you mean as a writer? Hmm? As a writer? As a writer. Contributing to the actual words, or just his influence was there? Now say that again, I don't understand. Peter. You said Peter's behind it. Peter is, is telling Mark the story. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, it's the Gospel of Mark, okay. but I, I, I think it's, and, and I, I believe this, and again, I won't be dogmatic about it because it doesn't say it, none of the Gospels are signed anyway. I won't be dogmatic that Mark wrote it because it's not signed. We just have a good tradition that he did, but I think it's a pretty cool idea that Peter is behind it because we see Peter's fingerprint all over it. We have this Eusebius talking about it. We have Peter referring to my son, Mark. We have Peter saying, you know, I'm going to make sure that after I'm gone, you'll be able to remember these things. So those are just the evidences that I, that I have of it. And, and the reason for all this, and again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but, but I dig for these things because I think it helps you hear. It helps you listen to the story. So this is a real person who the, the church met in his house. I mean, how cool is that? You know, this is eyewitness detail. And uh, so anyway, I, that, that's, that's, uh, that's how I like to engage with it okay so yeah so that's basically mark very quick overview let me do matthew and i'll just be honest with you matthew's my least favorite gospel i mean it's god's word and it's perfect but i don't resonate i don't hear matthew the way i hear the other three so i'm just being honest with you okay uh, so let's talk about matthew first of all we know virtually nothing about him matthew's not his name right what's his name levi Right? Matthew's not even his name. I'm convinced, and again, I won't be dogmatic about this, I'm convinced that Matthew is the nickname that Jesus gave him. I think he had nicknames for almost all of his disciples. We know he gave Peter a nickname. Peter's not his name. His name's Simon. The Sons of Thunder, he gave them a nickname. I think it speaks of the camaraderie that they had. I think he had nicknames for them. And, uh, and I think Matthew, which means gift of God, trust me, nobody ever thought of Matthew as a gift of anybody, I don't think. <laughs> So, uh, but, but again, I'm stretching, I'm stretching. Most of what we know about Matthew, we know from Matthew's gospel in chapter 9, we find out he's a tax collector, right? And um, we've, uh, people have made so much of that, it's, it's not as big a deal as I think sometimes it's made, it's made of. Certainly he would have been looked upon as a traitor, that's clear. Um, they were in the, in the Talmud, they're uh, grouped with murderers. So, yeah, it's not a good thing that he was a tax collector. Uh, 
but uh, I, think, I think too much has been, uh, been made of that. Uh, he, he may have had a brother named James. Matthew and James are both described in two different lists as the sons of Alphaeus. And so, unless there's a, a mistake, and I don't believe there are any mistakes. I'm a pointy-headed fundamentalist. I believe Scripture's perfect. So I think Matthew and, there's, Matthew and James are brothers, which also means that the disciples are made up. There are three pairs of brothers. How cool is that? Yeah, Matthew and James are brothers. Um... Sons of Alphaeus, tax collector. Um, interesting to me, Matthew is writing to Christians who are now being banned from the synagogue. And he would have been banned from the synagogue as a, as a tax collector. So I think that's an interesting connection that he has to his readers. Um, because he was a tax collector, he would have been banned. Um, he appears to have been located in Capernaum. That's where we first see him. He's collecting taxes. There's a tradition that he was collecting the fish tax, but you know, don't uh, don't buy into that. It's, um, but what does it mean that he was a tax collector? It means he would have been good at keeping records. And what is Matthew? Matthew is the record of the sayings of Jesus. That's what Matthew is. It's five blocks of the sayings of Jesus. If you got a red letter Bible, just flip through Matthew. And there are five big blocks of red letters. And I think that's very, very much what you would expect from a tax collector. In fact, uh, Eusebius, maybe Papias and Eusebius says that Matthew collected the logia, the sayings of Jesus. And that makes perfect, uh, perfect sense to me. Uh, okay. So, um, five, five blocks. Um, Matthew's gospel is organized in five blocks. Uh, the way the Torah is organized. Um, and Matthew, it, 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 there's a literary formula. You don't have any literary formula in, in Mark, maybe one, but that's debatable. Uh, but Matthew has a literary formula. He closes each one of his blocks with a sta statement when Jesus had finished saying all these things. He says that five times, okay? Um, in 728, that's the end of the first block. In 11.1, that's the end of the second block. In 13.53, that's the third block. 19.1 is the fourth. And 26.1, when Je Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's the last time he says it. So I interesting, isn't it? Mark, not very much structure. The... Um, yeah, there, there's only one pattern in Mark, and that's where, um, uh, let's don't get into that. Let's still stay in Matthew. Um, so five blocks. Let's talk about his, his, his voice. Um, I think the other gospel writers' voices are more distinct. That, another reason I have trouble connecting with Matthew uh, is that Mark clearly speaking for Peter has immediacy and simplicity and no agenda. We're going to see that Luke, who's associated with Paul, is interested in all the things that Paul's interested in. The gospel going to the Gentiles, the interest in uh, women in, in uh, being involved in ministry, that's Luke. Uh, the Gentile mission, medical detail. Uh, John, the most eloquent of, of the voices. Uh, uh, but Matthew, it's, it's harder to, to hear the distinct, his distinctive uh, voice. Um, so that, that's, you know, you may be better at, at, at it than I am. There may be something about Matthew that you resonate in a way I don't resonate with. Um, 
But uh, let's talk a little bit about life, the life situation. Um, and again, this is reading between the lines and trying to put together. This isn't spelled out in any first century document. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. Um, we, call, we call Matthew the Gospel of Galilee. He's more interested in Galilee than any of the other Gospels. He's more interested in the synagogue than any of the, in the other Gospels, as far as we can tell. And so we speculate that Matthew is writing to Jews in the synagogue right around uh, the, the turn of the first century. Again, it's not dated. We can't be dogmatic. Um, 70, we all know 70 is the big date, right? Everybody know about 70 AD? Okay, every Christian should know about 70 AD. 70 AD is the date that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and it's all over. I mean, basically no temple. Uh, Judaism, at least for a time, you know, is, is dispersed. And, um, and the Christians, who are all Jews, I mean, basically we're a, we're a section within the, the Jewish community. They're dispersed as well. Um, and I, I like to think that Matthew is written after 70, but again, we can't, uh, don't ever be dogma dogmatic about what uh, the Bible's not dogmatic about. That's where we get in trouble. Um, but what happens after you are a Jew and you are, and it happens to, to this day. Yeah, I, I, I knew the son of an Orthodox rabbi who became a Christian and got kicked out of synagogue. And I spent time, I mean, we would have coffee and he would just sit and cry because he ceased to exist. You know the phrase, you're dead to me? Yeah. That comes to us from Judaism, right? So Matthew is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who have been, the karim is the Hebrew word, they've been banned from Judaism. They've been banned from the synagogue. And like I said, I think Matthew is particularly um, close to them because he, his whole life, or at least his whole adult life, he'd been banned from the synagogue. And, and if you're a Jew and you've been kicked out of the synagogue, what, what's your main problem? Your main problem is you don't know who you are anymore. Because if you're a, Jew, a Jewish person, J Judaism defines you. You eat a certain way and you drink a certain way and you, ha you marry certain per a certain person and you have certain friends. I mean, your Judaism defines you. And if you are banned, you don't know who you are anymore. And I'm making a big point out of that because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is constantly telling them who they are. Matthew remembers these times when Jesus is helping them understand who, who they are. I'm not saying that Matthew made these things up. I'm just saying it fits his purpose. Um, and that's, that's the, the most unique thing that I can find uh, in, his vo uh, in his voice. Um, now nah, you don't... You don't hear that. Um, you don't hear that. Well, maybe you won't hear that. Um, when, when, uh, when it was determined that uh, the Jewish Christians had to be kicked out of the synagogue, we have in Judaism today, this, the synagogue service is based around what's called the Amidah, A-M-I-D-A-H, Amidah. It means to stand up. And they're also called the 18 benedictions. They're 18 blessings. In Judaism, when you pray, you bless things. If you get a Jewish prayer book, it's how to bless things. If you see a, a child with a birth defect, blessed art thou, eternal God, our Father, who creates variously formed creatures. 
That's the Jewish blessing when you see someone with a handicap. They have blessings for smelling sweet-scented wood. I mean, Judea, prayer in Judaism is largely blessing things. So uh, the 18 benedictions or blessings uh, uh, were, well, let me, read, let me read number 10, and, and we'll get to number 12. Here's 10. Um, Sound the great horn for our freedom. Raise the ensign to gather our exiles and gather us from the four corners of the earth. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who gathers the dispersed of your people, Israel. They still pray these every Shabbat in the synagogue. Okay? That was 10. Here's 11. Restore our judges as in former times and our counselors as at the beginning. Remove us from sorrow and sighing. Reign over us, O Lord, you alone in chesed and tender mercy and, uh, and clear us in judgment. Blessed art thou, O Lord, the King who loves righteousness and judgment. Does that sound like a blessing? Isn't that pretty? Okay. This is number 12. And this was added right about the time that the Jewish Christians were kicked out of the synagogue. This is number 12. And for slanderers, let there be no hope. And let all wickedness perish as in a moment. Let all your enemies, the Nazarenes, you know who they are, and the Minim, a Minim is a heretic, and the Minim be cut off speedily, and the dominion of arrogance uprooted and crushed, cast down and humbled, uh, cast down and humbled speedily in our days. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who breaks the enemies and humbles the arrogant. Okay, that's the life situation of the first readers of Matthew's gospel. They are Christians who've been kicked out of the synagogue, Jewish Christians who've been kicked out of the synagogues. And so Matthew is writing to them to tell them who they are. Only in Matthew does Jesus say, you're the salt of the earth. Only in Matthew does Jesus say, you're the light of the world. Now in John, Jesus says he's the light of the world, and he is the light of the world. But in John, he tells his listeners, you're the light of the world. He's telling them who they are. And that's one of the distinctiveness, distinctiveness uh, of Matthew. Okay, how are we doing on time? So, good. Let's do Luke. Yeah. Don't ask anything hard. Opinion. Okay. Probably there's a lot of people who believe that when you said it's harder to hear the distinctive voice of Matthew. And yeah. He was so good at record keeping and so forth. Right. I'm, to me, it's harder to hear. Yeah. Okay. They're pointing to that's evidence of autism. Uh, any, nah. Anything else than that? Nah. I mean, you know, you can speculate it until the cows come home. I, it's, it's someone who is autistic. I, I don't know. Could he have been a tax collector? I don't. I don't know. Who knows what kind of problems they had? They weren't vaccinating people, so isn't that where most all? <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't mean to make light of your question, but I don't know. But I like asking, just because that, we can't answer that question doesn't mean it's not a good question. Socrates says there's more learning in the question than there is in the answer. So I think learning to ask good questions is, is cool. I just don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, Matthew tells us who we are. Sure. I think that goes with what you said about um, Matthew writing to Jews that got kicked out of the synagogue. I've heard that Matthew, more than any other gospel, is laser focused on Jesus as fulfillment of the Old Testament. Absolutely. Prophecies from the genealogy. Yeah. Do you think that's part of it, just reassuring the Jews? I do. That you are following the right person. And one of the things I didn't bring up is Matthew, before, whenever Jesus does anything in Matthew, he quotes a verse from uh, the Hebrew Bible. If Jesus moves to Nazareth, Matthew says it was because it's because he will be called a Nazarene. Now that doesn't sound like the fulfillment of him moving to Nazareth, does it? 
Because if you look at that, there's no verse that literally says he will be called a Nazarene. The, the only verse in the Hebrew Bible that says he will be a rod. The Hebrew word for rod is netzer. And so Matthew, is, Matthew justifies everything Jesus does by quoting it. You're, you know, you're, on, you're on to something there. It's the most Jewish of all the Gospels, written by the worst Jew that Jesus had on his team, right? He's always going to quote the Old Testament. He, he, he divides it up like the Torah, five books. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, so yes, thanks for bringing that up. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, let's talk about Luke. I love Luke. Uh, Luke was uh, a physician. My dad was a doctor, so I know, I know how they think. Uh, he's a companion of Paul. I'm not a big fan of Paul. Not that I don't believe he writes, you know, his, his books are God's word. I just don't think he would be much fun to hang out with. <laughs> Peter is the person that you want to go have a cup of coffee with, right? <laughs> Paul is not the guy you want to hang out with. So uh, that's just my own, own prejudice. So Luke is a companion of Paul. Luke, here's a good trivia question, good you know, for, you know, bar bet question. Luke writes 28% of the gospel. Paul only writes 26%. Luke writes more of the gospel than Paul does. How cool is that? But when, so when they're together, these two guys wrote over half of the New Testament, just these two men. That's pretty, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, oh, uh, Paul writes 24%. Uh, Luke writes 28%. Um, of the New Testament? Yep. Um, yeah, our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas, who was a lawyer, uh, send greetings. Um, my, my mentor, Paul, Paul had malaria or some kind of problem, whatever this thorn in the flesh was. And that, again, people love to speculate about that. Uh, my mentor believed that uh, um, Luke, uh, well, I'm going to talk about the fact that he was a slave. Um, Luke was a slave who was purchased and given to Paul to take care of him as a doctor. Most slaves in the first century were doctors. Yeah, most doctors, sorry. Most doctors in the first century were slaves. We'll talk about that in a second. Second, um, Paul has a relative named Luke, sidebar. Luke is, a, is a, an odd name. It's, a, it's called, a, here's your big word for the day. Why use a little word that everyone can understand when you can use a big word that no one understands? Hypochorism. Hypochorism, okay? My name is Michael, but I want you to call me Mike. That's a hypochorism. It's, an, it's a nickname. The, the, the full form of Luke's name is Lucian, okay? Lucian. And one of the ways you named slaves in the early day, in the, in the first century, was you gave them a hypochoratic version of your own name. So a man named Lucian would buy a slave, and he would name him Luke. If I were a slave owner, God, you know, God forbid, in the first century, I would probably name one of my slaves Mike. I would give them a hypocratic uh, version of my own name. Interesting thing is, Paul has a relative named Lucian that he greets. So the, let's talk, let's, let's speculate, let's make the line just as thin as we can possibly make it. I believe Paul's relative Lucian purchases Luke. Uh, but we'll talk about more about that. I mean, that makes the scholar's head explode, but I'm just a banjo player, so I can do this. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, Epaphras, um, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, uh, who are my, they are my fellow workers. So um, 
He's not an eyewitness, uh, one one. He, he talks about the fact that he interviews eyewitnesses, which is a very interesting process. I wish I had a lifetime to devote to this to try to determine who his eyewitnesses are. Now, th the first part is easy. Um, when he, he describes the nativity of Jesus, he knows what Mary's thinking and feeling. Now, how do you think he knows that? Yep, yep. That's how he knows. And, and we know that, well, we believe that Luke was in Ephesus and that Mary was in Ephesus with John. She, she lived there till her death. So the, the pieces of the puzzle fit really well together. But when you listen to that voice and you think, wow, she, he knows what Mary's, you know, the whole Mary Elizabeth thing, what she was thinking and feeling. How cool is that, that Mary might have been one of his, uh, his uh, eyewitnesses? I think that's a pretty cool thing. So he's not an eyewitness. He's probably a slave. I, I talked about his slave name in the first century. Uh, most professionals, not just doctors, most professionals were slaves. The slave culture, um, and we had this in the South, slave culture doesn't lead, lead you to aspire to be a doctor or a lawyer. S slave culture leads you to aspire to do nothing because the slaves do all the work. So the professional people, the lawyer, Demas is a lawyer. That's a slave name, Demas. It's a hypocratic name. Uh, Luke, again, a doctor, probably a slave. And I've got some other, other indi indications of that um, as well. So um, one of the um, hallmarks of his language, uh, language, though, is that he is amazed by the gospel. He's amazed by the testimonies that he hears. I call Luke the gospel of amazement. He exhausts the language of amazement. If you hear a verse and it says, and Jesus was amazed and, and, uh, uh, amazed and uh, astonished, that's Luke. Only Luke talks like that. Um, let's see if I've got the list. There are like five, five different Greek words that can be translated to be amazed. And he, he uses all five of them, and he usually uses two in one, ver in one statement. They were amazed and astonished. That's Luke, the gospel of amazement. And again, that's an interesting fact, but what we have to learn to do is act, ask what facts mean. Let me do a quick, quick sidebar. If I stand over here, it's a sidebar. It's not going to be on the test. Uh, I go to Israel every year. I take tour groups to Israel, and there's a rabbi there. And Moshe, who I've gotten to be really good friends with, he uh, has a high tolerance for Christians. I think he actually even likes Christians, which is interesting. Uh, we, were, we were talking one time about the, the feast, the, the pilgrimage feast. There are three feasts in Judaism that you, you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, right? The big three, the Shalash Relegim, they're called. Well, I'm trying to impress Moshe with my knowledge of Judaism, which, you know, is a pretty dumb thing to do to a rabbi, but there it is. And I'm saying, well, you know that Jesus uh, went to Jerusalem for the three big feasts. It's 100 miles. He walks from Galilee to Jerusalem for the three big feasts. And uh, so Moshe says, yeah, but what does that mean? I said, what are you talking about? What, is it, what does that mean? I said, well, why don't you tell me? He said, it means that Jesus spends three months out of every year walking back and forth to Jerusalem week to 10 days down, a week to 10 days there, and a week to 10 days back. And in John, he goes for a feast, an unnamed feast that's not one of the three. So maybe more than three times a year, he walks to Jerusalem. But what that means is, 
you know, at least three months out of the year, he's walking to, to Jerusalem. And what I learned from this, this uh, man is that you, you've got to stop and ask what facts mean. And so I will say a fact, Luke uses the word amazement a lot. What does that mean? Well, he's talked to eyewitnesses. So he's not amazed that he was an eyewitness and saw and experienced these things. But when he consistently talks to people 30 years later, 20, 30 years after the fact about Jesus, they're all still amazed. I think that's pretty cool. So learning to ask what facts mean, I think, is a cool thing. Uh, the other thing Luke does uh, is he uses medical language. Now, this was a popular idea in the academic world, and then it was kind of poo-pooed for a while, and now it's slowly becoming popular again. Um, but like I said, my, my dad was a doctor, and my dad used medical words when he didn't need medical words because that, that was his language. Uh, he used medical things when he didn't need medical things. One of my earliest memories of my dad, he was hanging a picture and he was driving a nail into the drywall with his reflex hammer, the rubber hammer they hit you on the knee with, because that's the only hammer my dad had. And that, to me, was kind of a parable. You know, he, you know if you know a doctor, at least a good doctor, that's what they're like, right? It's, it's like this. And, of course, Luke isn't a doctor in the sense that modern doctors are, but the point is he uses uh, medical words when he doesn't need medical words. So let me give you a list of some of those. One three he says, I've, caref I've carefully autopsied. Autopsia, the word he uses. I've carefully autopsied everything from the beginning. Um, when Zachariah asked for a tablet, you know, to write down his name is John, Luke uses the technical word for a prescription tablet that a, a doctor writes prescriptions on, because that's the only word he knows. That's his word. That's his world. John baptizes for the remission of sins in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the same word that we use for the remission of a disease, of cancer. He speaks of the demon convulsing uh, the man. He speaks of Peter's mother having a great fever. Doctors in the ancient world differentiated between greater and lesser fever. So she has a great fe fever. Uh, oh, I love this one. In, uh, the woman, in chapter 8, the woman with the issue of blood. Now you read that, and I think Mark, Mark will say, she had suffered many things at the hands of many different doctors, and instead of getting better, she grew worse. Okay, Luke leaves that detail out. Right? He's a doctor. He, you don't need to know that. He leaves that detail out. So that's, listen, that's listening to what he doesn't say. Okay? Um, uh, the, the man brings the, his son to Jesus, and he says, examine, in uh, 938, examine my son, and it's the word of a, for a doctor examining a patient. Only uh, Luke refers to the man with dropsy. Uh, and Malchus uh, loses his little ear, his ear lobe, in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't, Peter wasn't going like this. He wasn't aiming for his ear. Peter's going like this, right? And Malchus turns his head and just loses his ear lobe. And in the confusion, Jesus heals him. If, if those soldiers had seen that Peter had drawn blood, he would have been a dead man, right? He would have been a dead man. So I think in the confusion, Jesus heals his ear and and saves Peter uh, again. So he uses, uh, uh, uses medical language. Okay, what would you expect from a slave writer? So we, we, yeah, we talked about, what did I talk, we talked about medical language. Yeah, let's, would you talk about a, a slave writer? And this is the major theme of Luke. And once, if you haven't seen this uh, before, you're, gonna not, you're not gonna believe that you haven't seen this. 
because this is the, this is what Luke does. Luke pairs his witnesses. Now John does this somewhat, but not to the same extent. Luke pairs his witnesses, and he'll have usually a Jewish man who should know what's going on, but doesn't. And most often, he'll pair his, his man with a woman who, no offense ladies, in the first century, women were somewhat marginalized. People make a, a bigger deal out of that than it really is true. But they were marginalized somewhat in the first century. And what Luke does is he shows a Jewish man who should understand who Jesus is but never does and a woman who always understands who Jesus is going. Let me give you that list. You won't believe you haven't seen this uh, before. Uh, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Okay, Who gets it? The sinful woman totally understands who Jesus is, right? She's weeping and kissing his feet. Simon the Pharisee, and here's another quick sidebar. In, in the Gospel of Luke, Pharisees aren't bad guys. Think about that. Who, who is Luke a companion of? Paul. What's Paul? He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees aren't all bad guys. Leadership in the early church was mostly Pharisaic. So uh, uh, that's another warped image that we have of the Pharisees. There was only really one sect within Phariseeism, uh, the followers of a man named Shammai, who were uh, very extreme, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that the, the Pharisees who hound Jesus are followers of this one person, Shammai. Uh, there was another, the other great school was uh, a man named Hillel. You've probably heard that name. And uh, Hillel, in many ways, is very much like Jesus, very much like Jesus. So... Anyway, quick sidebar. So, uh, okay, in the Good Samaritan, who gets it? The Samaritan gets it. Who doesn't get it? The Levites and the priests. They walk by the guy. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus, who gets it? Lazarus gets it. The rich man who should be blessed by God. That's why he's rich. Uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The rich, the rich men and the poor widow in Luke 21. Uh, the 11 and the women. And that, Luke is very interested in the resurrection. Who gets it? The women get it. He says, he uses a medical term, the disciples thought the women were delirious, and he uses the medical term for delirium. See, they don't get it. The women get it. Uh, Which one was that? Huh? What, did you think, what were those two that you said that were paired together? The, uh, the eleven and the women, and that's Luke 24. Um, now, the, the, his life, so there's, Luke is a person, and <coughs> how he comes out in his, in his writing. The life situation, we just don't know. Uh, here's, the best, here's my best guess, uh, and it's not my idea. It's someone much smarter than me taught, thought of this. Uh, Luke is, we think, a cover document for a collection of Paul's writings that were submitted at his trial. Um, he's a companion of Paul. That makes sense. He's with Paul when he's uh, you know, going under trial. That makes sense. And in the Gospel of Luke, he emphasizes the innocence of Jesus. When you get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, everyone is saying Jesus is innocent. I mean, the people who are being crucified with him are saying he's innocent. Pilate is insisting, like four or five times, Pilate says, you know, I'm not, I need to let this guy go. He's innocent, right? Uh, so the innocence of Jesus is, is, uh, is, uh, is heightened, <coughs> heightened in Luke. Now, I won't be dogmatic about that, but... In terms of life situation, I think that may have something uh, to do with it. Boy, there's more I want to do on Luke, but we don't have time. Doesn't that mess up your percentages then? What percentage? Of, of who wrote the New Testament? Oh, I don't know. Well, I'm still saying Luke wrote it. Yeah, well, okay. It's just for that purpose. 
Yeah, no, it's it, he's a companion of Paul, and there he's involved somehow in the. And that, well, the other thing that's who we think maybe Theophilus is someone who's involved in the trial. But these are just guesses. Don't don't go out here and teach this and be dogmatic about it. We're just putting the p- p- pieces together. Yeah. I have a quick question. You started that whole thing with the comparison and contrast. Yeah. Because as a slave writer, I, I don't get that. Oh, okay. Well, he, he in 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 Luke, the people. Okay, um, I wrote a book on slavery years ago uh, called A Better Freedom about how so many, uh, Paul, Peter, everybody says, I, Paul, is a slave to Christ. I, Peter, is a slave to Christ. Our identity is found in slavery, and it's actually the only way we're ever going to be free is to be a slave to Christ. It's this wonderful paradox. Okay, and so what, what Luke does is he shows the, 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 it's an upside-down world. And as a slave, I think he's interested in that. Um, there's an old slave narrative from the South from around the time of the Civil War uh, after the slaves had been uh, freed. A slave returns to the uh, farm where he had been a slave and his master is standing next to a split rail fence and the slave is up on a horse because he has some status now and he looks down at his master and he says, he goes, hey, the bottom rail's on top now. In, In other words, the world's been turned upside down and when you read Luke, you get this idea. I think that's why the, women are getting it and men aren't getting it. The world's really been turned upside down. He, he, had, he has a, a focus on the poor. In, a, in Judaism, you're poor because you've done something wrong. Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? You know, the, and, and all of a sudden, poor people are getting it. And marginalized women are getting it. And Luke is very, more than, so than any of the other Gospels, he's really excited about that. Exactly. Exactly. To him, he resonates with that because the world's being turned upside down. So, yeah. Okay, so quickly, let, let me do, do John in the five minutes that we have left. I knew I couldn't do this. Uh, sure. Say, say again? I don't know. I don't know. Do you have an idea? No. Okay. I guess he was so young, he yeah, he's very young, and, jo- and John is really young. We're going to talk about how young John was. Um, quickly, quickly, quickly. We know a lot about John. We know a lot about John. Uh, we know his father's name, Zebedee. We know his brother's name, James. We know his mother's name, uh, Salome. And did you know that John and Jesus are first cousins? Okay, here's how you get that. Uh, in three passages... Uh, after the resur- or at the resurrection, there, there's a group of women. They're called the three, right? Two Marys and a third person. Okay. She's described three different ways. Now, it may be three different women, but if this person is the same person, then John and Jesus are first cousins. And here's how it works. In, Ma- in Mark 15:40, she's called Salome. So we have her name, Salome. In Matthew 27, 56, she is the mother of Zebedee's children. What was that reference? Uh, Matthew 27, 56. Okay? So, Mark 15, she's Salome. That's her name. Matthew 27, she's the mother of Zebedee's children. That makes her John's mother. In Luke, uh, and sorry, in John 19, 25, she is his mother's sister. His mother being Mary. So, that makes... Salome, Mary's sister, which means Jesus and John are first cousins. Now, will I take a bullet for that? No. 
but I think it's a really cool idea, and it explains a lot. Why does John entrust Mary? Why does Jesus entrust Mary to John from the cross? Makes perfect sense. Why, why are they so close? He's leaning up against him on uh, the Lord's Supper. Also, he's very old. He's probably 14 years old. Um, they're cousins. How cool is that? We know that John the Baptist is his cousin, right? Because Mary and Elizabeth are relatives, so somehow Jesus and John the Baptist are related. So why is it a stretch that uh, Jesus and John... And I just think it's a really cool idea. I mean, my, my main academic reason is I really want it to be that way. Uh, John is the last living disciple. That's significant. Um, he's providing leadership for the, those seven churches that we read of in, in Revelation. Some people say that's a different John. I don't think so. I think it's the same person. Uh, he's at least 90 years old, and I'll do the math for you in just a second. Uh, his, his brother James is the first person to die, the first disciple of Jesus to, to die, and John is the last. So James and John are kind of the bookends of the disciples, which I think is pretty cool. This is Eusebius, who writes around, I don't know, two, from 260 to 330-something. Uh, Meanwhile, the holy apostles of our Savior were scattered across the world, John, to Asia, where he stayed until his death at Ephesus. Um, Okay, here's a reconstruction of his age. Uh, I think he's born 18, around 18 uh, AD. That means when he meets Jesus um, in 30, he's like 12. Is that right? Yeah, that works. When he's standing before the cross in 33, he's around 15. Now we know from Eusebius, he lives to 117. And he's 99 to 100 years old, so that we're, we're, we're counting backwards. Eusebius says he lived into the reign of Trajan. That's 117. So he lives to be 90 to 100, which, uh, yeah. So if you count back, that's, uh, he's in, in 33, he's 15. In 30, he's 12. He's born in 18. And again, don't be dogmatic about it. But the point is he's very young, which explains a lot of stuff. He's the constant companion of Peter. All through Acts, Peter and John are always together, and John never opens his mouth. He's young. He keeps his mouth shut. Um, but the, uh, again, we're out of time. Um, one of the most important things to, to, to be aware of in John is, don't we go till 6? Are you kidding me? Why didn't somebody tell me that? I'm going, I'm trying to go fast. Huh? You could try to get a word edgewise? Oh. oh, cool. Okay, well, I'm going to slow down then. Uh, one of the most, yes? Okay. Did I go too fast? Yeah, well, you know what? I can give you guys all these notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give them to, uh, I've got all this typed up and, and organized, I mean, actually much better than I'm teaching it from. So I'll get those for you. That's easy. Okay, so let me, you, you want to get, go through that again now that we know we have some time? Um, yeah, 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 you don't want that. Uh, okay, Eusebius, uh, Eusebius Church Histories, uh, actually it's book three. Uh, he's the one that tells us that John was in Ephesus and that he lived into the reign of Trajan. Okay? 
117, yeah. Trajan began his rule in, in 98. Uh, is that right? Lived until the, who began his rule in 98, it, and it ended in 117. That's how long Trajan reigned. Trajan's wall, he's that guy. So if you, if, uh, you see, if you take, he's in, in 117, if he's 90 to 100 years old, um, that means in 33, he was 15. In 30, he's 12, and he was born in 18. That's how, I, that's how I get it. But I'm the worst math person in the world. I'm as dyslexic as it gets, but, you know, I think that works. Yeah. Not, not necessarily. No, see, because in, in Judaism, uh, there's no such thing as a teenager in Judaism, right? You're a boy or you're a man. So after you're bar mitzvahed, I mean, certainly you're, you're immature, but you're, they don't do teenagers in Judaism. You're a boy or you're a man. So after you're 12, I mean, at 14 or 15, he would, he would have had a responsible job and he would have been, you know, supporting his family. Because how old was Mary supposed to have been? Had right. So almost scandalously young, yeah, a young teenager, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just kind of we, we have to learn to think in terms of Judaism. Okay, uh, one of the interesting, uh, most interesting things about John is its distinctiveness. Ninety-two percent of John is unique. Now that should bother you. Ninety-two percent of what's in John isn't in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Now, if it was 30% or 40%, I would say, eh, you know, it's a, it's a, a what's the word I'm looking for, a, a coincidence. But 92%, he is consciously leaving things out and substituting stuff that he knows you don't know. Uh, that's 92%. I mean, come on, come on. Um, so let's, let's uh, look at some of the things that are distinctive in John. And first of all, uh, also remember, he's, a, he's an elderly person who has been giving leadership for decades in the church. And uh, that, I think that affects his choice of material. There are little sermonic blocks in John that the other Gospels don't have. This is the verdict, he says. Well, that's preaching, right? So there are little sermonic uh, fingerprints. Uh, these are some of the uniquenesses uh, of, and, and also these come from the fact that he's been preaching this for 40 or 50 years, right? It, 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 things come together in themes. Mark doesn't do that. Mark's writing down what Peter says. John is sharing what he's been sharing for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And it was written decades after the other three also. There, Peter's, been dead, Peter's been dead for 30 years, 40 years when John writes his gospel. So, so he got to give the, the scene the effect of the other Yep. That had a lot to do with why he wrote what he did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And imagine this. He's the last living disciple. Yes. Matt, what was that like being in Ephesus and seeing this old guy, you know? I've been to Ephesus. I've seen, you know, I've seen where he's buried. This old guy kind of shuffling along, and you go, that's him. You know, what was that like? That must have been pretty cool. So. You would see he felt the responsibility then to kind of. I think so. I think so. And again, he, it's, it's elegant. John, the Gospel of John is elegant. Mark is not elegant. It's perfect. It's God's Word, but it's not elegant. But John is, it comes together in themes, for example, um, uh, parables. John is not interested in parables, not the way Matthew is. 
There are very few parables in John, but the parables in John all have to do uh, with this elegant sort of revelation of who Jesus is. So Jesus will feed 5,000 people, and then they'll say, I'm the bread of life. He'll heal the eyes of a man born blind only in John and say, I'm the light of the world. See, that's elegant. And that comes from, he's been preaching this stuff. I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit's been revealing it to him. Um, but he's also interested in, in, in Jesus encountering single people. If there's a story that you read of Jesus talking to someone for more than three or four paragraphs, it's John every time. Let me give you that list. Uh, his encounter with Nathaniel in chapter 1. That's a long passage. Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. Only in John. Nobody else talks about that. Um, Jesus talking with Nicodemus in chapter 3. That's a pretty long passage. And that's only in John. Uh, the, the man uh, by the pool, who I think is the biggest jerk in the New, in the New Testament. Uh, the, we don't know his name. Uh, the, the guy by the pool, Bethesda who Jesus heals, and then he doesn't even know who Jesus is, okay? And then after he finds out who Jesus is, he goes and tells on him. I mean, I just, I slapped this guy, okay? But there's this long passage of this guy. The woman at the well, that's only in John. Here's Jesus talking to this. And if you've seen the chosen, man, they get the woman at the well. They nailed the woman at the well, I think. Uh, Jesus healing the man born blind in chapter 9. That's a whole chapter of that guy. Uh, the raising of Lazarus, his appearance to Mary Magdalene, the, the, these, these passages of Jesus talking to somebody for a long time, that's only John. He's interested in that. Okay? Yeah. Uh, only John reports that Jesus had an early Judean ministry. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, usually about a third of, of those Gospels is the last week of Jesus' life. Right? If, don't ever let anybody say the, the Gospels are biographies. If they're biographies, they're horrible biographies. Who, you know, and, and in John, uh, half of John is the last week of Jesus' life. Okay? They're testimonies, and they're perfect testimonies. They're rotten biographies. I mean, we, don't, we have one little scene when he's 12. We have this big gap when he's growing up. We know nothing. I mean, wouldn't you like to know? You know? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they're not biographies, they're testimonies, and they're perfect testimonies. Um, but only John reports uh, the fact, the first three chapters, that Jesus had an early ministry in Judea. Uh, if you read the synoptics, Jesus starts his ministry. I'm working on this now. Um, I'm working on the trajectory of Jesus' ministry, which I think is a really interesting question, how he begins solo. He, he, it's a while before he calls the disciples. He, he has a synagogue teaching ministry in Galilee by himself for, I don't know, weeks or months. And then he chooses the 12, and then his, his popularity, we all know, skyrockets. 5,000 people, 10,000 people, right? Huge popularity. And then what happens? John 6, he starts talk, talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And there's this subtle erosion in his popularity. And I've never heard anybody, I'm sure someone has looked at this before, but I can't find it. So by the time Matthew 17, Jesus and Peter come back to Capernaum. There's no crowd there. There's nobody waiting for him. I think there's a subtle erosion in his popularity. And then the final trip to Jerusalem, when he, you know, you, you, you tend to think of the triumphal entry as this huge crowd of people that are all there about Jesus. That huge crowd of people is going in Jerusalem for Passover. There's a group of disciples around Jesus that are obviously excited about him, and they're saying Hosanna and that sort of thing. 
but that big crowd is just coming for Passover, okay? So uh, how did I get on that? Oh, so there's an early Gal uh, Judean ministry, yeah. Um, it's a little bit off topic, so I don't mean to That's okay. change it too much, but um, what, what is thought that Christ was doing during that gap? Was he just doing like a carpentry work? You pick, you know, pick. Make it up, because that's all everybody else is. We just don't know. You know, a, a normal Jewish young man would have been working with his father. I think that's the best guess. But, I mean, some people say he went to India. You know, there's all kinds of wild theories, because we just don't know. You talked about the ministry. Yeah. But I, I know it's referenced a lot of times to where somebody wants to go out and blab about what he just did, and he's like, it's oh, not the time. Yeah, that's Mark. Yes. Yeah, I Messianic mean, Secret. Does that uh, chronologically... No, 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 it it fits in with the trajectory because after it skyrockets, that's when he starts healing people and say, please don't tell anybody I did that. But they they always tell. How can you not tell? And the Messianic secret is not a secret. It's Jesus. The ministry's out of control. He's trying to keep a lid on things, right? And it's impossible because they always tell. And almost every time, it, and, and most of the examples are in Mark, it says, and, and Jesus had to flee to the wilderness. Or so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. They are covered up with people. And, and towards the end, when it's going like this, in Mark, there's, a, this, there's this period of time where he takes the disciples away and concentrates on them and teaches them in the wilderness. So um, I think that fits in. And the his popularity, I mean, 10,000, 15, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, what do they say that's 15 or 20,000 people? That's 5,000 men, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. And, and, and he starts saying things like, have a boat ready so the people don't push me into the lake. You know, he's just, because he can't do his ministry. I mean, there's 20,000 people who want to be healed. He, yeah, and they're not interested in what he has to say. Yep, yep, and that's a pretty good theory, but we just don't know. Yeah, and that, that's, to me, that's consistent with him. I, I think it's, he's obscure, right? There's, there's this obscurity that happens, because even after his ministry starts, Mary kind of doesn't get it, because at one point, Mary thinks he's lost his mind. And people say, well, how could a virgin birth, all that she experienced, well, 30 years later, you know, you forget miracles pretty quick. And she's worried about him. He's not eating. Um, so yeah, so yeah, your your guess is as good as mine. But it, but but what does it mean that that information in there? What it means is the gospels aren't biographies; yeah. they're testimonies. So and, and Luke says that. The, the way that that the sin, when he's in the synagogue, they refer to him as the carpenter's son. Right. So that's his identity. He has yes. an identity. Yep. In right in Nazareth. Yeah, and they're offended. That he's saying the kind of thing, because this is not how carpenters talk, right? Yeah, who's, been, who's, who's given him this wisdom? So that's a, maybe a little of evidence that he, he didn't go to India and get a lot of wisdom and then come back with it. But that's in, in the new, new Age teaching, that they like to do that, like to say that. No, not, not to the same extent, although nowadays... It's like this, okay? I think in, in the first century, it's more like this. And carpenter, it, the word is tecton. 
he works with everything. He builds stone walls. He even maybe works with metal. Uh, there's not much wood where Jesus lives. So carpenter was King James, you know, and it, that's just, that's stuck. He's a craftsman. He's a builder. We don't have a, a really good word to translate tecton. Yeah, which I think is cool too. So I mean, he can he can st- stack a stone wall. How cool is that? You know. <laughs> And, but the, the image of him and Joseph in the carpenter shop, probably not. There's more to it than that. Yeah. But his identity is that he's the carpenter and he's Joseph's son. Yeah, that's good. So, um, you had brought up that Mary at one point and, and his brothers seemed to think he was crazy. Yeah. And I've wondered about that and, and how it contrasts with her statement in the turning the water into wine, right? Where she says, where she says that, you know, do whatever he tells you. Which right. Kind of makes you think she knows more, you know, of of his, that he has some ability. Yeah. Use. Well, Cana is the only window we have into their relationship, so it's really important. And what I get from Cana is, um, Jesus, uh, Mary, Mary says they're out of wine, and Jesus says, don't involve me. My time hasn't yet come yet. And what does that sound like? That sounds like no to me. What does Mary do? She turns to the slave and says, do whatever he tells you. So they have this sort of relationship where she understood that that didn't mean no. And if there's a need, he's going to do something about it. And he does do something about it. So I, for that reason, I like Cana. It's like, he, it's like he says no, but she knows that didn't mean no, and he still does his thing. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Let, let, let me try to finish. Did I remotely even answer your question okay 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 let's let's talk about this 92 percent unique uh, business because what uh and now I'm, I'm i'm talking from bill bill lane's teaching here what we have in john are striking omissions but every time he leaves something out he substitutes something okay so uh striking omission no birth narratives in john no sheep no shepherds no star so, but what does he uh, substitute? The incarnation. See, he knows you know about the birth narratives. What you need to know is in the beginning was the word. That's what you need to know. And see what an elegant thing that is? Um, and a quick sidebar. Um, uh, John and all the gospel, this is true of all the gospel writers. They may write in Greek, but they think in Hebrew. Okay? So when John says word, he used the word logos. He's not thinking logos. And you have commentaries written on the Greek philosophical, all that's behind logos. Trust me in this. And I'll be fairly dogmatic about this. That's not what he's thinking. He's thinking debar, the Hebrew word debar. That's the Hebrew word for word. And it's so obvious in, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. What does the word of God do? It creates things. It's through God's word that everything is created. Now read the introduction of, God, of John. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus is the debar, the, the, the bar of God. What so those two words? Uh, I'll show you. Well, my chance to show you what little, okay, you got, well, that doesn't work. There you go. There's logos or logos, but there's no O sound in Hebrew. And in, in the debar, uh, Debar. That's it in Hebrew. That's debar. Does it appear in the Old Testament? Hmm? Does the word debar? Yes. 
Yeah, this is this is a major theme. This wisdom in the wisdom writings, the the word of God is a big theme in the Hebrew Bible. And we try not to say Old Testament. We try to say Hebrew Bible, because if if you have if you work with Jewish people at all, they do not like it when you call it the Old Testament, because that's like the we have the New Testament. You have you have the Old Testament. Yeah, and that that's just a sensitivity I have from being in Israel a lot. They do not like it called the Old Testament, but. But yeah, this is this is a New Testament Greek, and that's Old Testament Hebrew. Yeah, which is much much more fun. By the way, Hebrew is much more fun than Greek. A working a working Greek vocabulary to read ninety percent of the New Testament about ten thousand words. Okay, working Hebrew vocabulary to read ninety percent of the Hebrew Bible about five hundred words. You choose, right? And that's the interesting thing about Hebrew. This this means like five different things. I wrote a book on the Hebrew word hesed. I have it tattooed on me. Hesed is a major, major theme. Hesed is translated 169 different ways, one word. That's why Hebrew is so cool. So why do I have 169 words? Huh? Because I, I speak Hebrew, I don't have to. If you use two of those, a lot of meaning words in one sentence, oh. well, what does it mean? It means volumes. So Right? Well, okay, chesed va'emet, grace and truth, that gets translated into grace and truth. Hesed, 100, uh, I didn't write it, but anyway, hesed, uh, 169 different men. Emet is the word for truth in Hebrew. That's, it, it, I don't know how many definitions there are, but there are, you know, tens of, de there's maybe 30 or 40 different ways. I don't know for sure. I don't know much, so much about hesed. But that chesed va'emet, you can write books on those two words. Favorite translation? Uh, CSB, because I worked on it. No, 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 like the meaning of the Oh, Hesed? You don't have a favorite because that's not how words work. Uh, the context, words don't have meaning. So you have to know the implications, the context. You have to know the context. Okay, let me ask you, what does the word key mean? Well, you don't know until I tell you the context. Well, it's probably imagination, just like you said. What do I imagine yeah, I'm not, I didn't ask you to imagine. I'm saying, what does it mean? What does key mean? Right, the context. So is it the thing you open the door with? Or is it the key idea? And Hesed is kind of that way too. So it's, it's uh, King James made up a word, loving kindness. That word was made up by King James to translate the word Hesed because there wasn't a word that he could find that he could translate because it means love, it means loyalty. In Leviticus, it's translated um, disgrace. If a man looks on the nakedness of his sister, it's hesed. Well, you don't translate. That's not loving kindness, right? That's disgrace. The context tells you that's how I've got to translate it, right? So one of the big things, because I, I, I wrote a book on hesed too, one of, the, one of the big things for me was to learn that words don't have meaning. They derive their meaning from the context. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's liberal. Ooh, you know, don't do that, you know. But it really is true. It really is true. Language, language is, uh, the, the, we make these sounds with our, you know, our, our tongue and our teeth. And like, um, I can go, um, if I walk into a movie theater and I shout fire, well, there's going to be a response, right? It's just I said this one word. Or if I'm standing for a, a, next to a firing squad, you know, and I say fire, well, that's not so, such a good thing. There, there's, there are better examples. I'm not thinking of the good ones. Yeah. 
The reason that, uh, like, the history uh, and the context in that time is studied so intensely is so that the translation can be as accurate as possible yes. because of all the media. Absolutely. And one of the things that's wrong with uh, our tendency to, is to translate things into, we want it to be readable and understood by people in our time. And that's a good thing. But that can't dictate that always the choices of the words that you use. Because sometimes, so, some words are untranslatable. Amen. You can't translate that. And when I, when I worked on the CSB, I, I was the only non-PhD. on the t There were 17 translators. Okay, I'm the only banjo player in the whole group. <laughs> And one of the, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that Jesus does that's, that's totally unique and totally mysterious is he uses the word amen wrong. Okay? Amen, what does amen mean? It means I agree with you, right? At the end of the prayer, you say amen. Not Jesus. Jesus says it at the front of things. Amen, 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 I tell you. Okay? And no one knows how to translate it. King James, verily, verily. Truly, truly. NIV makes up a sentence, I tell you the truth. Well, those words aren't there. The NIV translators made that up because they think in the context that that's what, that's what amen means. The truth is, and I think it's cool, we don't really know. That's what we talked about earlier is like word for word translation versus yeah. phrase for phrase. Right. Two different types. Of yeah, oh, translate, that's a whole other, I never want to be involved in doing a translation again. It's a nightmare. <laughs> But I, the one thing that I pushed for, I said, okay, this is, this is mysterious and ambiguous. Let's translate the ambiguity. Let's leave it amen, amen. And nobody was willing to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I get, the one thing I was dogmatic about. Please, I'd feel so much better if you do that. Well, no, no, you don't want, I don't want my name tied up in this. Okay, let's, let's finish up with some of the uniquenesses. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, okay, he leaves out the birth narratives, gives us the incarnation. Fewer parables and fewer miracles, but the parables and miracles that are there are very elegant, and they reveal who Jesus is. Um, what else? No Gethsemane. He leaves Gethsemane out, okay? He gives us the high priestly prayer. Sermon on the Mount. How can you tell the story of Jesus and leave the Sermon on the Mount out? John leaves it out. He knows you know that. And what he gives us is uh, the, the new commandment. Uh, Lord's Supper. How about that, y'all? How do you tell the story of Jesus and leave the Lord's Supper out? He leaves it out. But he tells us, and I think this, this is really dear to me. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist tells the story in chapter 13 of the foot washing. And I strongly suggest to you that John is the first person that can bring himself to tell you that story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all know that story. They can't tell you that story. John, all those years later, can tell you that Jesus dressed himself like a slave and got down on his knees and washed people's feet. Because uh, that's too... Well, Peter's right. You shouldn't be doing this, right? Jesus shouldn't have done that. That was too much. But Jesus says to Peter, if you don't get this, you don't get me. This is who I am. I love it when people tell Jesus, you know, you really shouldn't do this, like John the Baptist. You know, you should really be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. I like that. So Lord's Supper. Uh, he leaves the Lord's Supper out, gives us the foot washing. Um, sermonic conclusions. This is, this is something I, I, that I saw, and I can give you the references. 
John, being the preacher that he is, uh, closes blocks of material with little sermons. And I'll give you four of them. Uh, One, one through five. That's a sermon. In the beginning was the word. That's a sermon. Uh, Verses 10 through 14 is another little sermonic block. This this is going to bother some of you. Uh, John 3, 16 through 21. That's John preaching, I think. Now, in your Bible, those are in red letters. But I suggest to you that that's John preaching. And if you listen to it and kind of learn the, the, what his voice is like when he preaches, it sounds like somebody preaching. So uh, I, I won't take a bullet for it, but I think, I think it is. And 31 through 36 are our little sermonic conclusion in John. And my, my only reason for being, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to teach it because they stop in chapter 3. And I have, that ruins my whole theory. It should be all through the gospel, but he stops doing it in chapter uh, 3. Now, let me give you the, the biggest thing, and then I'll shut up. The biggest theme in the gospel of John is what I call the motif of misunderstanding. Motif of misunderstanding. And, and I, I said this earlier. In the gospel of John, when Jesus, every time, and it's usually prefaced by him saying, Amen, Amen. Uh, when Jesus reveals himself in a new way, the very next verse indicates the person not kind of doesn't understand. They have no idea of what he's talking about. And I think it, had, and this is my theory, I think it has a literary, it, it's, it serves in a literary sense. Jesus is more and more misunderstood as the, the gospel and lo, kind of lonelier and lonelier. I mean, Peter doesn't understand him till finally he's all alone on the cross. I think that's how it works. Um, It's a motif of misunderstanding. Okay? And John, he, he lays it out in 1.5. He says, the light shines and the darkness can't comprehend it. In 1.10, he says, the world didn't recognize him. And in 1.11, he says, his own people didn't recognize him. So he's preparing us for that. It's in the introduction. What was the last one? Uh, 1.11, his own people. He came to those that were his, were, were his own and they didn't receive him or didn't recognize him. And, and the reason it's, uh, the, behind this is John, one of the reasons for the uniqueness of John is it's based on the wisdom writings. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are based on the law and the prophets. John's based on the wisdom writings. And the wisdom writings of the Old Testament aren't about wisdom. They're about the inadequacy of wisdom. Now, there's proverbial wisdom in Proverbs, don't get me wrong. But the book of Job, what's the book of Job about? Nobody can, his wise friends, and Job included, they have no idea what God, God's doing. Ecclesiastes, what are he saying? The wisest man in the world, right. The smartest guy in the world, Solomon, says, wisdom isn't it, because I have no idea what's going on in the world. So the wisdom writings are about the inadequacy of wisdom. And in the Gospel of John, which is based on the wisdom writings, men's wisdom is inadequate to understand who Jesus is. He's the wisdom of God incarnate, see? John, John's based on the wisdom writings. And the wisdom writings are? Uh, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. In the Old Testament, you got the law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings are the wisdom writings. So it, okay? You said man's wisdom is Completely inadequate. Completely inadequate. You know, just think, now, now think through John. Nicodemus. How can these things be? Nicodemus is really smart. He's in the Sanhedrin. One of the, one of the uh, 
requirements of the Sanhedrin is you had to be familiar with 70 languages. Nicodemus is a smart guy. Jesus reveals himself to him and Nicodemus goes, and Jesus goes, you don't get this? You're one of Israel's leaders and you don't get this? Yeah, I, lo- I love that. Let me give you some of the, some of the uh, uh, so Nicodemus in the 3, 4, the woman at the well, she does not understand who Jesus is, 4.11. Uh, the disciples uh, ask about food. Jesus says, I've got food to eat, you, you know nothing of. They have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, the Jews don't know where Jesus is going. I'm going someplace you can't follow. Where are you going that we can't follow you? Okay. Uh, there's confu- Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep. Well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. You know, he's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there, basically is what he says. That's uh, 11. Martha is confused when Jesus tries to comfort her about the resurrection. Um, God's voice is misunderstood. When God speaks in chapter 12, verse 38 and 31, uh, Jesus talks about being the way in chapter 14, and they have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, In chapter 16, the disciples are confused about seeing Jesus again. And um, the very last thing that Jesus says in John is misunderstood. What is it to you if I want him to remain alive until I, I come back? You follow me. And because of this, a misunderstanding arose. But Jesus did not say this disciple would not die. He only said, so it's really interesting to read John and look for the fact that Jesus is just this lonely, misunderstood person. The, the people who should have gotten it didn't get it. And uh, I, I, that's one of the things I love the most about John. So that's basically all I got. Huh? John, wasn't he exiled? Yes. By Domitian. Hmm? When was he exiled? Uh, Domitian. What's the reign of Domitian? I can tell you. I got my notes. I'm like so smart when I have my notes. Well, uh, Domitian died, and when an emperor died, his edict ended. So, yeah, Domitian dies and he comes back. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Good man. So from our time, we got challenges about the inconsistencies between the gospel and gospels. Yes. And how was the best way to explain that? Okay, he says, sometimes you hear about inconsistencies between the gospels. My personal, and again, this is uh, a matter of faith for me. I think the gospels are perfect. That's why I, I, I don't know how to answer the question to people well, I think what happens when there are incons- there, there, when there seem to be inconsistencies, it's just that we don't understand. There's, there's something, there's a missing piece that we don't understand. I'm trying to think of an example that people think of as a, as an error. It's not really an error. Sometimes when you learn the background, you realize no, that was completely appropriate. Or, um, my my mind's really tired. I've been, uh, I've been bush hogging all day, so I'm not. I'm not as sharp as. <laughs> yeah, I can't think. I can't think of one either. Um, I remember reading. This is this is not a specific example, and I don't. Maybe I'm getting the argument wrong. I remember reading somewhere that the fact that the inconsistencies that people point out, the the general answer is like that's it. Like, and often oh, yeah, yeah. in different historical sources, you would expect a lot more. Right, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that too. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, that's good. I, I mean, that's part of the argument. I mean, if there are inconsistencies, they're minuscule. But um, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the problem 
if we're going to point out a problem, is variant readings. Uh, there are as, ver as many variant readings in the New Testament manuscripts that we have as there are words in the New Testament. If you get a Greek Bible and they, have, they list the uh, variant readings on the bottom of the page, it's, it's, it's full. It's, that, that's, that's a problem for people, who, inerrancy people. You know, but I don't think, um, I think God's word is infallible. I think the nature of its perfection, I can't say it's inerrant because I've got thousands of different, uh, in, in old manuscripts, I've got different readings. So there are errors when people copied it that were introduced into the text. That's not the Bible's fault, but it's infallible. Its perfection lies in the fact that it perfectly accomplishes perfectly accomplishes the mission that it sets itself to, which is to give me knowledge of who Jesus is and what he means. It's perfect. I'll take a bullet for that. In the, in the 80s, I was with a group that we smuggled Bibles into China, and we developed uh, bullet theology. So the, the bullet theology works this way. If you're, if you're arrested and the guard, you know, puts the AK-47 to your head and says, you know, den deny the divinity of Jesus, I say, pull the trigger, right? Deny the, the authority of Scripture, I say, pull the trigger, um, baptism, sprinkling or immersion, ah, don't pull the trigger. I won't take a bullet for that. So you develop really quickly what, what I'm willing to take a bullet for. And, and most churches divide over non-bullet issues. Why do churches divide? Immersion or sprinkling, who cares, right? What, what was the last church that divided over the divinity of Jesus? So I, I, I like bullet theology. It's really simple. What will I take a bullet for? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to make a comment, and then I have a question. Okay. Um, the, the comment is, um, I, I just thoroughly enjoy your enthusiasm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got that from Bill Lang, too. I, I did a deep dive into John, just one of the themes in John, many years ago. And one of the things I walked away with was what you talked about earlier, um, I think in Mark, the, the contrasts between two groups. So in John, I see the Pharisees are just, you know, the, the wise and the learned. Yeah. Just totally don't get it. Right. But the crowds of people that are the unwashed, the unschooled, they get it. Right. But what do they get it based on? Not an understanding of the Hebrew text. Right. <laughs> it's Jesus heals somebody yeah. when they see him. So what are the implications for us today when you look at, when that, when that picture is presented to me, you know, that changes the way I look at things? Well, I, th I think it's still true. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So I think it's still true that, that the people who tend to really grasp, I mean, I, I was a disciple in an African-American church, okay? And I was studying all this stuff at the same time. So I'm reading Greek and Hebrew. I think I'm so smart, right? And the, the person who most impacted my life was a woman named Dinah, who raised 75 foster children. I used to sit with her in church. That woman changed my life, okay? Now, I was studying with a PhD from Harvard. He's really smart. Now, he changed my life, too. But the reason I'm standing here is Dinah Smith reached out to me and showed me what the gospel was really like. And when you'd ask Dinah, 75 black and white children, okay? And you'd ask Dinah, um, why do you do this? Because they're poor. It's hard work. Yeah. Well, her answer was, if I don't love them, who's going to? And that changed my life. 
Right? So if, if I don't love people that God puts in my reach, as it were, who's going to love them? And I learned that from her. Yeah. So, um, and so I think it's still that way. The, most, the, the deepest faith and the people that are, you know, will take the bullet uh, don't tend to be the PhDs. Now, there are some, but, but um, yeah. yeah that, so that's been my experience. I got to meet um, years ago um, Richard Wormbrand. Uh-huh. He was tortured, right? Yeah. That, that's a guy that, that really had an impact on me, though. I'm, I'm not volunteering for, for the sorts of things that he did. <laughs> I don't have my Bible with me. I, I, I got to know a guy who was in prison for 22 years in China for his faith. At any point, he could have said, I don't believe anymore, and they would let him out. Right? Mm -hmm. It was that easy. And he's, he's, a, he's in a work camp. I mean, they're trying to kill him by overworking him. And uh, I asked him, what was, the, what was the worst thing that you suffered all those years in prison? He said, the worst thing I suffered was when I thought my family were forgetting about me. So that was horrible. How did he get out? Huh? He was finally released. I don't know. It's like when they figured out the re-education won't work, I guess. Yeah. Well, I've got a great picture. If, if we do this again, I'll bring my other Bible that's got a picture of him. He's so, such a cool guy. Uh, he was given leadership in a church in, uh, I forget what town it was, but very cool guy. Brother John. Those are the guys. And so he wasn't a PhD. He was a guy who spent most of his life or a good part of his life in prison, you know, digging ditches and doing things like that. And he got it. And, and that, that's the gospel, right? Yeah. I would also say it's like the beauty of innocence. Like, we talk about childlike faith. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if any of you guys know Michael Watts, you can ask him stories about Nash, like his four-year-old son and the things that he says and the things that he believes. Just this beauty of not having years and years and years of information flooded to you. It's why Gen Z has the hardest time making decisions. Mm -hmm. Because they've been flooded with so much information they don't know what to believe. Mm. Well, and back to the women issue, I mean, one, one of the, in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught, better that the law be burned than given to a woman. Every time a, every time a man looks at a woman, he inherits Gehenna, hell, okay? So there were, there were blind, uh, they were called bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they wouldn't even look at women and they would run into things, okay? They were bruised and bleeding Pharisees. That's the world, okay? And so in that context, who gets it? Okay, who, who buries you know, uh, who's, who's responsible for taking care of Jesus' body? Women, right? And, and two Pharisees. Two Pharisees bury him. But uh, the women take care of him. And, and it's over. I mean, the, think about this. I don't think we appreciate this. There, but it's before the resurrection. It's over. He's failed. It's all been for nothing, right? And what are they doing? They're there taking care of him and honoring his body and, and uh, sacrificially giving, you know, spices and things like that to wrap him up. And the disciples are hiding out. They've had enough. It's over. You, you don't get the resurrection until you understand that. It's over. It's been for nothing. And then all of a sudden, what's the turnaround? What was that like? Holy cow. Let me pray and I'll let you go. Lord, thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, resonate in our, in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, let this book tremble in our hands. Pray that we would read, uh, read the Bible in, in fresh ways and that you would show us things that we've never seen before and put things together that we've never put together before because that's what you do. So we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we have each other, uh, that we are part of this body, 
And we thank you for the calling on each one of our lives to invest ourselves in listening to your word. And we just ask for wisdom and patience and all the things we need to really listen uh, to your word. And we ask that with confidence and deep joy in the name of your son. Amen.